Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Naked and Inside Out. It's Janine Toro here. We're an LGBT podcast highlighting people in the community doing some incredible things with their lives and careers. And we're here to share these stories with you, our listeners. Today we have on Jamie Chung, who is an engineer over at Dropbox in San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Thanks for having me, Janine. I discovered Jamie a few months back. I was at the Lesbians Who Tech Conference in New York. And it's funny because now that I think of it, I don't even remember if there was like a common topic or like each person that came up, if if there was like a, um, you know, something that they were supposed to talk about on the agenda, right? But what I do remember is that you went completely off script, which I thought was very interesting. So, I mean, I just want to let the listeners know a little perspective about how I met you. But maybe we can dive into that in a little bit more detail later, but maybe intro our listeners to a little bit about you, maybe how you identify, what you do over at Dropbox, your, like what was your involvement with Lesbian Sue Tech? Yeah, sure. So I am an engineer at Dropbox. I predominantly do web development work with the monetization team. So we're sort of that team that puts out a bunch of experiments, OR. Do users like a dark blue button better over a light blue button? And I'm sort of the engineer that puts together all of those experiments and puts them out. And particularly in the context of the tech industry, I put a lot of time and effort into diversity and inclusion. Uh, Right now, I'm having kind of mixed feelings about it in general. We can certainly talk about that more later. But it's really important to me. I identify as trans and non-binary. So for me, that means that I don't identify as really either gender, um, man or woman. And I'm, for me, I'm sort of, I feel kind of like somewhere in between. And as someone who is masculine presenting, I find that I should also spend a lot of my time fighting for a lot of femme visibility, a lot of trans women's rights, as well as their livelihood. And so that often ties in with a lot of the work that I try to do besides from the software engineering part of my day. So that's really interesting to me because when I met you, I actually didn't even know you were trans. And I guess it's this funny thing for me because I personally, right, I don't go around looking at people and trying to guess how they identify or, you know, is that person, you know, were they born female or born male or like that just doesn't like cross my mind, right? Like I just meet a person and I think they're interesting for who they are, but I also want to be respectful of that, right? And they're, you know, the way that they want to be presented or like if someone goes by they, they they're them, I don't want to say he or she, right? But I don't know, is that something that you think about even just from an outsider's perspective to people looking into the LGBT community, but how is it going to be okay? How do we make it less ignorant, right? And more like, because I, I find that a lot of people that aren't really in our bucket or even people in our bucket they get so overwhelmed by these sort of labels or these classifications. They're like, well, I don't know what the difference between this is and why can't they just identify as this? And I'm like, but it's not that. It's complicated. I think it's really complex and nuanced. I think identity has a lot of different layers to it, more than just gender identity or sexual orientation. And in context of being trans, I think that you say like, oh, like I didn't even know that you were trans. I think that's sort of an interesting stipulation because you sort of have to think about what what signals to you physically or through any kind of behavior or through any sort of thing other than the person just outright telling you like what's what is it that signals to you 
um, that someone is trans. Right. So brings in a lot of different topics about passing, about respectability. I think that respectability usually is in the context of people of color, usually office settings, but I think it can be expanded out to a lot of different environments. Yeah, I don't know. I think the <laughs> the question that you're sort of asking is what makes someone trans? And I think there's this idea of queerness that is really helpful for us to use when we say, oh, like, I was born this way, you know, but lately I've been thinking about does it make it any less legitimate? I'm using air quotes that you can't see. <laughs> does it make it any less legitimate if someone chooses to be queer? And I personally don't know if that's true. I think that even if I weren't born queer, if I chose to be queer, then that would still make me queer, you know? So even if I weren't born trans, like when I was born, I don't really feel there are some parts of my body that feel more dysphoric than others. And at the same time, like, I think that it gives people and individuals a lot of agency to really be able to present themselves and live in their bodies that the, the way that they want to. And so the way that that gets easier, I think, is if people start thinking more critically about what gender means to them and also mm -hmm. how it sort of exists in the reality of the world today. And even reality is kind of like a weird thing, right? Because it's like what everyone interprets the world very differently. And so it's it's kind of trying to reconcile like how you want to be seen with how the world is going to see you based on whatever we as a population of humans have learned is the norm. Because I think everything is sort of in relation to that. So when someone is approached with an appearance or an experience that seems really uncomfortable, then they're, I don't know, it's, it's my experience that most people aren't open to just learning about things straight off the bat if it seems very um, unfamiliar to them. And so I think that for me, at least, I feel like I go in between a lot of different spaces and I'm able to navigate them pretty safely just because of the way that I present and the way that I speak, the way that I am interpreted. And the way that I try to bridge those gaps is by really trying to connect to, I, this is sort of like a cheesy response, but I really just try to connect to the humanness of it rather than just sort of the identity part. Because if you really kind of keep asking why, like, why am I thinking about whether or not that person is trans? What does that mean? Like, why am I thinking that? You know, why is it important to me? Why is it important for me to know? You really sort of uncover a lot about what your, like, what your own internalized beliefs are, whether or not they're positive or negative beliefs. And then you're able to connect that to like other human centric experiences rather than it just kind of like revolving around this nebulous identity of like, what does it mean to be queer? Yeah. And that's just it. Like even I catch myself saying like, you know, oh, I, I didn't know that person was trans, but it's like, but does it, it doesn't matter. It's just this way of just that we're so used to thinking. It's this weird line, right? You know, I identify as gay and you know, I don't necessarily box myself to that specific term, but I'm also not, I could understand why outside people could find it confusing. And I guess I just wonder, I know it sounds cheesy too, how we could like come together and just see that we're all just people, right? Like at the end of the day, we're all just people that have like goals and values and things like that. So I try to be even more mindful of things like that. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's, I feel like you, we shouldn't think like that anymore, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think 
again, I think it's really complicated. Like, yes, we are all people. And also just the way that the world is set up, people have very different experiences. Right. And it's, I think a lot of it is the complexity of holding, you don't know what you don't know, speaking to different parts of privilege and entitlement and, you know, having these vast knowledge gaps of experiences between folks. And then also trying to hold like, I am my own individual person and I have dreams, I have goals, I want to find joy the way that I want to, you know, and like really coming into stepping into that agency of like being able to achieve what you want to or, you know, whatever that might be. And I think that the more important part is, yeah, thinking critically about identity, particularly because for me, I think that I think that the labels that we use are mainly tools for when we as humans experience a feeling or experience something that we don't actually have language to describe yet. And we're trying to connect with others to be like, hey, does this resonate for you? Does this feel good for you? And eventually like those words and those labels kind of become more normalized, I think. So in my own personal experience, I just recently went through a bunch of different steps to get some documentation changed, which for a lot of people in the trans community is really difficult. There are a lot of barriers. There's financial barriers. There's social barriers. A lot of people don't have support in either financial or social networks to get this change done. And especially in states like California, it's even if it's fairly streamlined, there's a lot of different steps that you have to take. You have to have a medical provider, which sort of implies that you need medical insurance. So my experience in taking steps to get these changes done is really different than someone else who is homeless, who you know doesn't have like a social network support. And that being said, there's still a lot of things within the system of you know getting your name changed that feels very it just feels very not resonant to me. I've never really been someone that's like, oh, I can't wait to have my gender marker read M. And so when I went through this process, I just sort of went with changing my gender marker because the way that I've experienced a lot of different kinds of harassment in bars and in TSA lines. And I'm just like, okay, I'm I'm really at my limit with this. Wait, 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 why though? Because of your identification saying that it was female or just, Uh, just really? So, yeah. And this is pretty common for trans people. You know, there are a lot of, I think I I actually just recently went to a, um, a meeting with the creators of trans lifeline and they had this like kind of depressing slide at the end where it's like, there was this poll. I mean, granted it was sort of like, I think it was by like a media website, but it was just like an open poll and people asked the opinion of like, what's your opinion of trans people? And I think we were more unpopular than NRA people. Wow. <laughs> people who would, people who participate in the NRA. So that was not great. But yeah, a lot of trans folks still continue to get harassed in bathrooms, in, you know, in bars and like, I mean, any public space really, because I think transphobia, homophobia, femphobia is all very real. I think a lot of it just stems from really toxic masculine culture, teaching us that masculinity or men have to be this way or else it's not acceptable. And I think particularly as a person of color, like that was also a big barrier in coming out as trans as well, because 
there aren't a lot of models for POC to view trans and what that means to them in their own sort of like, I mean, gender and race in the United States go very hand in hand. And so I think when you're trying to figure out gender for yourself, it's hard not to think about what that means in terms of your own culture and your background and how other people are going to read you. And that's not to say that like still just like all trans people experience harassment. It gets worse for people who don't pass, quote unquote. I I personally really don't love passing as just like kind of as a concept because it sort of implies like, oh, like men should look this way or women should right. look this way. Like, right. what, does, what does it mean for someone to look non-binary, you know? And so, yeah. And for people who don't fit in to any of those sort of standards or any of those sort of images, it's hard to find a place where you can find some kind of peace or where you can find, or where you can find safety. This actually segues nicely into something. I was researching you, right, for the podcast, and I was scrolling through your Twitter. I'm not sure, though, if you wrote this or it was on your Twitter, though, and I thought it was an interesting saying. It says, coming out is usually not any one particular event. It's a process and an ongoing series of judgment calls regarding safety, bandwidth, and cost. Yeah, that sounds like something... I said, actually, I think that's in my original presentation that I was going to give. At Lesbians Who Tech? Right. And then I just didn't. Yeah, I think that's really true. Particularly for, again, this sort of like kind of goes down to that concept of like equating back down to like the human centric experience, right? Not to be like super like, I don't know. I don't mean to like erase anyone's actual like different oppression, right? Because like oppression is super real and not to say like, oh, well, we're all humans at the end of the day. Like, yes, that's true. And also like people just, there are different ways that people experience the world that don't make that statement quite as simple as it should be. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Like, especially coming out, like, I think that it's a constant check. Like, it's not just as if you mark a day in your calendar and you're like, all right, well, after this day, I never have to come out again. (laughs) Um, you're always constantly evolving as a person. You're constantly moving spaces. You know, you're changing jobs. You are meeting new people. You're, you know, like talking with different types of family, chosen family, as well as given family. And I think that it's, it's really up to you to figure out what makes you feel safe. And there's this constant reconciliation of how do I want to be seen versus how am I seen by these people? And I think particularly for trans people and or for people of color, it's really difficult to find someone where you don't really feel like you have to walk them through every single facet of your identity, right? They just sort of let you be. And it's it's really just kind of like this unconditional acceptance of like, okay, maybe I don't understand this quite yet. And I really care for you. And so I'm going to try and make as much space for you as I can. And then just trying to negotiate where that line is between like, that constant emotional labor of like having to redraw your boundaries in terms of what you want to like teach someone through like how you exist in the world, as well as just like getting that energy back of like, Oh, I feel very seen and I feel very safe with, with this person or with this community. And coming out, I think is really related to that because I don't think that it's easy to come out in new spaces or around new people, unless you already have kind of like a foundational network in place. And yeah, it's it's hard. <laughs> like there are a lot of different ways of coming out. Like I don't think it's just with gender identity or 
sexual orientation, like, you know, it would be hard to come out to a very conservative Christian family as an atheist or, you know, and not to say those are the same thing, but I think a lot of it just surrounds this fear, like this human fear of like, am I going to be accepted by the people that I care about? Right. And yeah. And I think that that can be really like, I think that people don't understand how exhausting it is to have to do it again and again. Yeah. I mean, I definitely don't think they realize it. I mean, and I also think a lot of people make assumptions and, or it's like, sometimes I feel like I have to say, like, I almost have to say that I'm gay in certain environments because of the level of people's assumptions and just like their ignorance, you know, until they know that they're like, oh, well, if we would have known you were gay, we would have never said that around you. I'm like, but that's not the point, right? right. Like, exactly. yeah. I mean, yeah, it sucks to be like, well, you just don't look gay, you know? Like, yeah. And you kind of sort of think like, well, what does looking gay really mean? Right. And yeah, and it sort of like kind of comes down, it circles back to this conversation that we were having of passing, right? Like, what does it mean to look trans or what does it mean to look like, you know, a flaming homo or whatever? And sorry, maybe we like, <laughs> I'm super flippant when it comes to like, you know, queer culture. Like, I really love subversion and I really love that people can present the way that they can. Or, I mean, I, I feel like that they should, not that they can everywhere. And I don't know, especially like when it comes down to it. For me, I think a lot of homophobia, a lot of transphobia stems from femphobia. I think that like even in queer spaces, I feel like there's a lot of, I don't know, I'm still kind of thinking about this concept, but I think that a lot of our own internalized fears of what it means to be femme, like what it means to really just kind of like sit with femininity as a strength and as something that can that isn't viewed as a threat or isn't viewed as weak or isn't viewed as like some kind of negative thing. Like, I think that's really hard for some people. There's a lot of inter, like, I feel like there's a lot of toxic masculinity in a lot of different spaces. And, and a lot of that contributes to how we might read someone in queer spaces or in, you know, like any space in the world, people saying like, Oh, well, you don't look like you would be gay because you look like you would be straight. Right. And like a lot of like, I think like heteronormativity stems from like, well, like women should look this way and men should look this way. And so when someone diverges from that or when someone sort of exhibits like behavior that you wouldn't expect, then all of a sudden it's unacceptable. And I think people have different ways of expressing unacceptable. Like, I don't think that, I don't think homophobia always has to be similar to racism, right? Like it doesn't always have to be just outright and like blunt. Someone who is racist when they say, oh, well, like I have a black friend, so that means that I can't be racist. <laughs> it, I hate you know, that. Just as bad, if not worse, like when someone is part of like a white supremacist group. Right. And I think that there has to be a lot of thought in terms of like how we interpret other people and how we interpret their identities. And I, I think that there's a lot of defensiveness that happens when we don't feel seen, right? Because it feels harmful for us, whatever trauma or whatever hurt we're carrying, when someone kind of like just pokes that really like soft, tender, squishy spot, we're all like, ah, oh, God, like, how am I ever going to exist in this world as myself? And it really sucks when you're in any space or in any environment and you don't feel like people around you kind of get what you're about in any way, you know? Right. When did you come out? I came out to my parents when I was starting, when I, you know, was like a little baby queer. I came out, I think when I was just graduating college and 
for me, that was really hard because my parents, so I'm, my parents and I moved here from Korea when I was pretty young and Korean culture is fairly conservative. I would say like most liberal Korean parents are probably on like the conservative end of what I interpret like American parents to be. Okay. And yeah, I was really scared. I was kind of prepared to not speak with my family for several years. <laughs> wow. Shout <laughs> to them. And yeah, and I feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of defensiveness, there's a lot of like, oh, like will my will my family continue to accept me? And I think that when so this is kind of like as we're sort of continuing to evolve both in our identities as well as what we want to ask from the people around us, it it sort of pushes the people around us to understand their own internalized beliefs too. I think that the conversation with my parents is still evolving constantly and it's really hard. It's really tough. There are a lot of hurtful things that are said, I think, on both ends. And I also think, at least in my experience, there's a lot of vulnerability as well, which I am really appreciative of because I think a lot of it also stems from expecting that things were going to be different, right? For me, like I was never really someone who talked to my parents about my personal life anyway. And so Mm -hmm. it was kind of counterintuitive for me to talk to them about something that is so personal. (laughs) That's like, you know, like I just, yeah, it was kind of strange and weird. My my family wasn't very affectionate growing up either, but I always felt cared for in some kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that just kind of like figuring out what's your language with your family, like, and obviously, like, I think that reconciliation isn't always possible because sometimes the hurt is too much or sometimes like, you know, the gap between what you want to, what you want to give and what you want to get back and what you're able to teach and, you know, what you're able to shield yourself from, like, sometimes those don't always match up. And I don't know, I'm really thankful that so far conversations with my parents have been, I should say my mom, conversations with them have been uh, reasonable (laughs) for the most part. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's continuing to evolve. Like, I think like on the gender front, my parents are still very not on board and every so often, like I still try to engage in the way that I can. And I, I get the feeling that they try to meet me where they can. And so every time I talk to them, I feel like it's still kind of a process of coming out because it's still kind of like revealing like, Hey, this is how I truly want to be seen. This is how I see myself. And this is how I want the world to read me. I think that's kind of a, a hard thing for people to grasp, especially if they have no context of what that culture might be like, or what that, you know, if they've lost touch with kind of like, maybe like historical examples of, you know, how people might exist in the world. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting just in general, the whole parent thing, because (laughs) it's like you grow up sort of, they have this certain view of how your life is going to be, right? Because they're your parents. And, you know, if it sort of deviates from that expectation or that vision that they have, I think it's very shocking to them because for years I never understood, like, I... Maybe it was just more how I was feeling, but I never felt like truly 100% accepted. I think things are way better, like day and night now, but I feel like it took several years. Like It's like a process that they have to go through as well. And I think that sometimes people forget about that, that 
I mean, I see it from both sides because I, you know, I, I could argue myself probably in the face about this because, you know, it's just as hard for the person, right? Like me or you coming out and going through that and like telling our friends and family and explaining this, like, this is how we want to live our lives and this is who we are. And then there's their side of it too, as they knew us in X way, right? And now they need to learn us in this new way. Right. I I think that, yeah. And it's kind of really interesting because- Something that my mom told me, I don't remember when this was, but she said something like, I just don't understand like why you would choose this for yourself, you know? And that sort of like got me into thinking, well, like, well, even if I did choose this for myself, like, why would that make it less okay? You know? Right. Uh, Because it's like, I am, I am choosing for myself to live this way because the alternative would be not to, and like not be true to how I feel or how I interpret my authentic self to be. Yeah. And to me, it's interesting that people are in some ways questioning kind of like your motivations behind it versus just outright being like, oh, wow, yes, I see that you want to live your life in this way. How can I help you so that the world doesn't, you know, how can I help you so that like it's it's not as hard for you to exist in the world. Right. (laughs) Rather than like, why can't you change yourself for the world as it is now? Right. Because how many people do we have to interact with on a daily basis, let alone the people that are closest to us? Like you would hope that they would support us in the best way that they can. Right. Like, yeah, I, yeah, I just, I feel like the solution, I don't know. I don't really know any answer or solution. Like, I think that there's a lot of, uh, there's, I think there's a lot of unanswered questions. There's a lot of work to be done. And I think people are really complicated and also like kind of simple. I don't know. It's very bizarre, but I think that ultimately it's hard. And I think that if you can, it's just more important to just keep lines of communication open, you know, like not just with your parents, but like with anyone, like anyone who supports you, like not everyone has given family that they can contact. So even like chosen family or like any kind of support network, like it's hard, but I feel like the, the moments where we sort of approach each other with this kind of like curiosity. And I don't mean it to be like fascination of like, Oh, like, wow, the way that you live your life is so fascinating to me, you know, like just more like curiosity of what, like, how do you want to be seen? Like, what makes you feel the most uncomfortable right now? Or like, what's the hardest thing for you right now? And how do you envision yourself living your best life? And how can I be a part of that? Right. And I feel like that makes it less kind of like quid pro quo and more kind of like, how can we all come together and help each other live our best lives? And that to me feels a bit more sustainable than kind of like this constant exchange of, you know, action for action. Yes. hundred percent on board with that plan. <laughs> like that should be that we should just send this to everyone coming out that little saying <laughs> n- not even kidding so let's talk a little bit about when you were at lesbian Sue tech speaking I, well i've excerpted something from it which i'm going to read first and then you can give the listeners a little bit of context on what you were talking about and i'm curious you know what inspired you to sort of go off script or not do what you planned for that day so let me, let me read this first and then uh, i'll let you take it from there So we're not asking for absolution, but we are asking for the right to be innocent until proven guilty. Extrajudicial execution completely circumvents that. I want the same accountability being hand-drung over the red herring that is black on black crime to be applied to state violence. So yeah, a lot of... Okay, so let's rewind a little bit. I can't remember exactly when I wanted to do this. I was actually speaking at a conference 
a couple days before Lesbians Who Tech. And I think I was just, I don't know. I mean, ask anybody who sort of works in the diversity and inclusion circles in the tech industry, and most people will get burnt out at some point. You know, when I first started, I was like, no, that's not going to happen to me. Like, I love work. Like, I, I, I'm i sort of weird. Like, I love working. <laughs> like, yeah. I really like working hard. My partner is like, you need to take a vacation. And I'm like, yeah, sure. That totally means that we're just like out of the country and working, right? Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> you sound like me. I'm yeah. like, I'm going on vacation uh, between the, uh, the holidays and New Year. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to like think about the podcast, you know, like do this. And they're like, aren't you going on vacation? I'm like, yeah, but that's when I could about all like my creative projects. (laughs) Yeah. So I was in Toronto and I was giving the same talk that I was going to. And I don't know, I was just sort of like sitting on my hotel bed and I was thinking like, wow, this just doesn't really feel right. It doesn't really feel fulfilling. And I just thought I really want to do something different. Not, not really like, I, I don't know, like in my head, like the way that I'm talking about it right now, it sounds like, you know, there was like some really like dramatic music playing in the background and like there was like, this <laughs> light shining from you know, the alcove. It wasn't anything like that. It just felt like I just really sort of listened to myself and I was like, this doesn't feel quite right. And it just feels really empty kind of. And I was texting with some friends and I just sort of like kind of consulted with some friends who state violence against black people, it's really personal to them. And I asked them, I was like, Hey, I kind of have this like little idea, like, feel free to tell me if this doesn't feel like it would be appropriate or helpful. But I'm speaking at this conference tomorrow in New York. And I would really like to say something about recent events that have been happening, because I feel like not a lot of attention is paid to that in tech circles. And I also feel a lot for people who feel like they have to leave some part of their identity behind when they occupy a space. Particularly, I think in tech circles, like when you go to Grace Hopper, um, Lesbians Who Tech, like any sort of tech conference that focuses on like one part of your identity, it feels like if you are a queer woman of color, then you have to sort of leave one or the other behind. <laughs> uh, there's this kind of like recurring joke that tech conferences always seem to schedule like the the women in tech lunch and learn panel at the same time as like the people of color in tech lunch and learn panel. And so like, it's ah. like you literally have to choose between one or the other. <laughs> I wonder if they're even mindful that they're doing that though. But I mean, I mean, it is, I mean, it seems coincidental, but it, I mean, that should be something to keep in mind, right? Like you're not only falling into a, one bucket where you're falling under several, right? Like, so how do you, how do you even choose? Like, that's a very difficult question. Yeah, no, and I mean, I'm not even asking. I mean, I'm more just like thinking out loud. Right? I'm like, that's that's very strange. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And obviously, like, I think that the concept of that expands a lot more to just like picking where you're going to go for lunch at a conference. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a really like, it's really complicated. And I don't actually know if I understand the full brunt of it because it's very, it's a really like heavy topic, I think. And Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw is actually this black woman who coined this term intersectionality to try and help give language to what that feeling might be. And I think that people are having a lot of discussion around it now. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to, you know, feel like you have to leave a part of you behind so that you can exist in another space. So I was chatting with some friends and I just said, I really want to give voice to people who aren't often heard in the tech industry or, you know, just like in the world in general. And I would really love some of your thoughts in terms of things that have been happening in the world lately. And 
they were like, oh yeah, like, I think that's a really great idea. Like, well, here are my thoughts. And I would really love for you to, you know, like I asked, like, do you want to be anonymous? Do you want me to name you? You know, like I'm asking a couple of other people, this is what they're doing. And so it was kind of like this whole thing kind of came together really easily. And I, and it felt good. And so I thought like, okay, I think the universe just really wants me to do this. right <laughs> now. Most of what I talked about, I put together on a plane the day of, and the meat of it, I really wanted to be, I really wanted the focus to be on what my friends had said, particularly just around um, racial justice, around state violence, around things that tech people, I think I just remember asking them the question. I was like, if you, if you could have this room of people hear or know anything, you know, like regardless of like what things are feeling right now, if you, if they could know anything, what would it be? Hmm. And I just took all of those questions and sort of, I just want to read them out loud because I don't know, like I've given that talk before. I had a recording of it on the internet and it just seemed very, it seemed weird to give it again, especially like when I had just given it. And I was like, I, I hear that you're supposed to like disrupt shit in the tech industry. (laughs) It seemed kind of apt and it seemed appropriate. And yeah. And I just sort of wanted to give that space for people because I know that there are a lot of moments where I've personally felt and also like have been told that it's just hard to make space for yourself when you feel like it's not even there. And then when someone else makes it for you, you know, like when someone like really kind of like invites you in, there's a diff, like you, there's just like this stark difference in like just feeling way more expansive. And I think that's something that's really limiting for a lot of women, a lot of femme identified people, like trans women, people of color, um, in any sort of space where white cis men dominate the narrative. So I just kind of wanted to like do like a little push to say like, Hey, there are people that are doing really amazing things that have really amazing, like illustrative and innovative voices that are not yours. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you definitely achieved that goal. The entire audience was standing uh, and clapping until you exited the stage. Like it was super, po- I mean, it was super powerful. I was like, like, I felt compelled to go find you. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like it obviously, if it, you know, it resonated with me that much, let alone everyone else in the audience. So, I mean, thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you. So where do you see the LGBT community going in the future? Like seeing it evolve? Oh boy. Um, (laughs) Great question to Um, end on, right? (laughs) Yeah. I, I know where I would like to see it go. I can't say for sure that's going to be the same thing as where it will go. Um, I mean, that's kind of like what we were talking about with parents before where it's like, I've been thinking about, you know, being a parent recently and I'm like, ah, like, I don't know if I would be able to raise a kid the right way. And it's kind of like, it sort of brings into this question of like, what's the right way to raise a kid? Or, you know, like for me, like I think that as we sort of grow and we're able to think for ourselves and, you know, take agency in our, in our actions and, you know, learn what the concept of responsibility is, this, this sort of playfulness between expectation as well as kind of like doing what you want to do outside of those expectations plays a big part. And I think for the queer community, there's a lot of expectation, both like kind of on the community as a whole, as well as sort of like within each other. I don't think it's news for anyone that sometimes the different letters of the alphabet don't always play nicely with each other. Right. I think that 
people who are oppressed, it's hard for them to break out of cycles of reenacting the trauma or the oppression that they've experienced. And especially in the queer community, I think that there's a lot of different hierarchies. I think there's a lot of different levels of oppression. I think there's a lot of different things. And then, you know, just like, I think that like with sexual identity, there's a lot of different components that come into it, right? There's a lot of questions around nature versus nurture, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. am I choosing to be this way or was I born this way? Is it both? Probably. But, you know, like that we don't have a lot of tools in terms of like discussing that. And I'm hoping that like in order to sort of assuage the harm that we put onto each other through, you know, oppressing each other, whether consciously or unconsciously, like I hope that we can have more discussions about what it means for us to recreate these systems of oppression within our own communities and not just like queer communities, right? Like, well, I think that there's like within queer communities because like it feels very concentrated, domestic violence, mental illness, you know, racism and transphobia even, or like, you know, just general toxic masculinity, I think is really potent. And so I'm hoping that in the future, hopefully in the near future, (laughs) yeah, uh, we can have a lot more thoughtful discussion about what that means. And, you know, maybe it's not something that we can solve with a game plan, but maybe it's something that we can think about, like, how can we, how can we try to move to a place where we can talk about these things without feeling like we're triggering someone or without feeling like we're being traumatized or without feeling like we're constantly exerting emotional labor and we're just exhausted. And I think that hopefully within our communities, we can have, I think that lately there's a lot of different conversations around restorative justice and around, you know, like healing frameworks that might be able to help us mediate through these different conversations. But honestly, like, I hope that we can have more people that are trained (laughs) to really like, you know, facilitate these conversations because I think we need more healers and I think we need more mediators. And then I think that we need more resources for them as well, because mediating spaces and mediating conversations, healing people is such exhaustive work or exhausting rather. And I think oftentimes for anyone who's a caregiver, we forget that they also need care too. There's a lot of, there's a sort of lot of like one wayedness in terms of giving care of like people just kind of like continuing to be put in this position of like, you know, caring for others. But I think that there needs to be this kind of setup where maybe there's a healer who specializes in some kind of trauma, but then where do they find care and where do they find support? And kind of like stepping into this mindset of, of abundance and expansiveness, I think will also help us like kind of reframe what our perspective is in terms of what we can actually achieve and what what we can have. And I think that queer folks haven't always been in those spaces or haven't always had that mindset, right? Like we're often kind of like, well, like this is what you deserve or like, you know, like you can't possibly be a CEO because you're a queer woman of color. Like I feel like a lot of that, a lot of those negative beliefs really kind of limit what we might be able to do if we sort of thought about like, well, why not? And maybe there is a reason why not. Like maybe the why not is like, well, because of racism, because of, you know, like or anything. Right. And then we like continue to ask, well, why, why, why? Like when I was little, my parents used to tell me like, oh God, you would ask so many questions. (laughs) And I think that like, oh my God, 
No, my whole life too. They're like, Janine, you talk so much. You always has so many questions. And I'm like, but isn't that a, like looking back on it now, right? As an adult, I'm like, well, wouldn't that be a positive thing? Like, why are you making me feel bad about it? Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a really hard thing to present to people, not to take things for granted, right? Or like not to just believe everything that's said to you and really just kind of like thinking for yourself, like, oh, is this something that I want to believe? Is this something that I want right. to internalize? And then being able to make those decisions. So I, that was kind of like, you know, maybe sort of like off topic, but I, yeah, I hope that we can all just kind of as a community and both like as individuals, like I hope that we can sort of think more critically about like how we can expand and especially like how we can, like, I think before you sort of mentioned really quickly, like, especially for people who aren't familiar with queer identities, thinking about like, oh, God, why are there so many labels? Why are there so many different yeah. things? You know, I totally like, to be honest, like, I totally have that feeling sometimes too, right? Because it's like, ah, oh, Jesus, like, there's so many things <laughs> to remember. And I'm, I'm really terrible at remembering things. Um, yeah, and you don't want to make people feel like you don't care or that you're being disrespectful or ignorant, because sometimes you just don't remember. I mean, I think there's different things, right? Because it's like, I, I don't think it's like always just remembering. I think it's really just kind of like having personal stake in it too. Yeah. Because it's like really thinking like what what would it feel like for me if someone did that, and how can I like really ensure that I don't make this mistake again or that I do remember. And people find different ways to do that. And I think that yeah. And I think it's really beautiful sometimes when we do think of new language, right, and new new ways of communicating with each other how something feels. Particularly because I think that queer people people of color, just people who have been historically oppressed, they're constantly just pushed to the brink of existence. And, <laughs> and yeah. you know, it's hard to communicate what that feels like. And it's also really frustrating because like sometimes like you want to, you want to be able to communicate like familiarity. Like I said, like I've been thinking about, you know, being a parent recently and mom and dad are obviously both gendered. And I'm like, hmm, well, I don't really know if there's a lot of like gender neutral terms of endearment for parents that, you know, convey the same familiarity or the same kind of like connection that mom and dad do. And so, you know, like thinking about like, oh, like, what is that going to look like in five, 10 years, you know, 20 years, like the next generation, like, what is that going to look like? And as, as cynical as I can be sometimes, like I have a lot of faith in people. I try to, I don't know, I, <laughs> for better, <laughs> or for worse, I constantly try to believe that people are inherently good or, you know, like, what does it really mean to be a bad person or what does it mean to be a good person? And I think that what I can count on is that people will always just try to look for themselves or like, you know, look out for themselves in some indirect or direct ways. And once queer people, I think really kind of step into the agency of like looking out for themselves, I think we can really try and achieve cool things. Yeah, no, absolutely. Everything you're saying makes absolute sense. And hopefully the future goes in that direction or we just surround ourselves with people with that same goal in mind and work with them to do the best that we can, right? Yeah. Or, you know, I've been like seeing like these ideas of like all queer people like going off into this island in Scotland or, you know, like in somewhere. So like maybe... Maybe we can like have our own little self-sufficient island somewhere. <laughs> yes, it so sounds perfect. I'll get packing now. <laughs> Jamie, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it was really appreciative of, of you reaching out to me. Great. If our listeners want to reach you, where is the best uh, form of communication to find you or to reach out? 
I've been trying to like slowly wean myself off of social media for the last few weeks because it's been a bit heavy. Um, but usually like I check Twitter or honestly, like sometimes Instagram, like I, I send a lot of memes to my friends on Instagram. <laughs> and you can find me on both of those avenues at A-T-T-N Jamie. So that's A-T-T-N as in Nancy, J-A-M as in married, I-E. Great. I'll also um, link them. Cool. Awesome. Great. Listeners, thank you again so much for tuning in. As always, you can find us on nakedandinsideout.com, iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts. We're on Instagram as naked, A-N-D, inside out. Twitter, naked underscore inside out. Yeah. And also, if you're liking what you're hearing, please rate us on iTunes. Every review helps. Until next time, listeners. Thank you.